dude, I hate reinventing the wheel. I hate starting from scratch. And that's what I'm trying to bring to marketing, right? That's kind of like maybe part of my personal monopoly theme is like never start from scratch. People are always trying to come up with new marketing ideas. There is no such thing as a new marketing idea. You can only remix old marketing ideas. Hi, I'm Josh Gonzalez, and welcome to MindMeld. This is where I have in-depth conversations with some of the brightest people in the known universe. My aim is to spark deep conversations around interesting topics to find the tools, tactics, strategies, and philosophies that we can all use in our daily and creative lives. In this episode, I sat down with Corey Haynes. Corey is the founder of Swipe Files, a membership community and resource hub for cutting-edge, comprehensive, and sometimes crazy marketing ideas. He also teaches multiple courses on marketing, including refactoring growth and mental models for marketing. Before Swipe Files, he was the head of growth at Bear Metrics and has consulted for dozens of startups on marketing and growth. Some of those clients include SavvyCal, Evercase, and Riverside.fm a podcasting platform that I'm actually using right now to record this podcast. Besides some of the incredible marketing strategies that Corey shares in this episode, we also talk quite a bit about personal knowledge management, mental models, and entrepreneurship. It's a wide-ranging conversation that's already led to so many new insights for both Corey and myself, and hope that you come out of the other end of this with some new resources and ideas yourself. And as always, if you want to dig deeper on some of the topics or resources that we bring up at the podcast, you can find direct links to everything we mentioned in the show notes for this episode. You can find the link to the show notes in the description of this podcast or go directly to joshgonzalvescom slash podcast. That's J-O-S-H-G-O-N-S-A-L-V-E-S dot com slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T and you'll get all of the show notes and links related to this episode. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please pick up your phone, pull it out of your pocket, and tap that little subscribe button on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. That way you can get notified when I publish new episodes every Monday with amazing new guests each and every week. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I hope it blows your mind, leads to new ideas, and motivates you to keep doing whatever it is that you're doing. So let's get right into it. I'm Josh Gonzalez, and this is Mind Meld with Corey Haynes. Corey, thanks so much for joining me on MindMeld, man. I'm really excited to do this for the second time after the first one kind of messing up for us. I'm super glad to be on here a second time. It's an honor. I hope that's a, a first. I'm the first invite back. Exactly. I might even post the episode, like the bad quality version of it somewhere. But for folks listening, we're using Riverside.fm. It is a great platform, but for some reason, my audio just it didn't record. So it was just completely silent. So I'm really thankful, Corey, that you're coming back so we can record this. Hopefully we recapture that lightning in a bottle that we got last time. But it's a good segue because you're also using Riverside.fm for your podcast as well, right? Everything is marketing. Yeah. And it's been great. Again, like not perfect and no platform is going to be. They're still very early. I've been super happy with them. I've been using them for uh, for both my podcasts, actually, Default Alive and Everything is Marketing. I don't think I listened to Default Alive yet. Can you give me a little background on that? My friend and I, uh, Chris Spaggs, he runs a SaaS business called JetBoost. It's like a plugin for Webflow, no code tool. We actually met like a few years ago. Uh, I started like an Indie Hackers of San Diego meetup and he had just moved to San Diego, just kind of like got involved in the Indie Hackers movement. He was one of the people who came to the meetup 
we became friends. I made a little Slack channel. And then we started doing like these weekly calls. We would just kind of update each other on what we're working on and like help each other kind of keep accountable and brainstorm. And then when I left Barometrics and went full time on my own, we were like, hey, why don't we like turn this into a podcast? And then like other people can like listen and kind of get updates on what we're working on. And that's what we've been doing for the last five months now. So that's awesome, man. I'll have to check it out. So I'll post again for anyone listening. I always do these like really, really detailed show notes. So I'll put links to like all your projects in the show notes. So people, if you want to check that one out, but your latest one just dropped, right? Everything is marketing. Yeah. I left you an awesome review. I just, I'm Thank pretty you. sure I was like, Corey is marketing. You're like my <laughs> go-to person, at least on Twitter for like learning about marketing stuff. So yeah, that's been awesome. Tell me a little bit about the podcast and how it's been going so far. Yeah. So basically, the premise of the podcast was I wanted to figure out a way where I could do something different and add value to uh, all the other marketing podcasts out there. And what I noticed was that while I love them all, there's already a whole bunch of podcasts out there that are like these quick short snippets or features on like a particular story by a marketer, like, you know, how uh, X company added a million dollars in error with like this one weird growth hack. And like, oh, like that's interesting. But like, who's the marketer? And like, what's all the backstory? And like, how do they think that through? What's the strategy? What's the plan? So it's basically like a Joe Rogan experience meets like a nerd out session in marketing um, where I get to just do a deep dive on someone and uh, really kind of go into their background, how they think, ask them a whole kind of array and gamut of questions. And that'll be like, you know, the thing for that market. Like if you want to know, if you want to get inside the mind of how this person thinks, here it is. That's awesome, man. So what have you learned so far? Like, I mean, just from people's stories, from some of the stuff they've been sharing, what has been like some of the key takeaways from Because you did like 10 episodes, right? To begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also kind of core of the premise was um, it's so it's under like the swipe files brand, quote unquote. And the core thesis for swipe files is, you know, to swipe ideas from other industries, other people, like to kind of curate this library and repository of things that you can draw from for your own marketing. So I wanted to do the same idea or the same thing for ideas and for, you know, for stories and what people were doing. And again, a lot of other marketing podcasts will focus on a particular industry or business type, or even like type of marketing, like it'll just be like the e-commerce marketing podcast. And that's great. But my kind of thing, like what, what I want to bring to the table is that I want to encourage marketers to get out of their echo chamber, out of their like sphere of, you know, email marketing or like e-commerce marketing and really get outside it and really like widen their perspective. And so I'm bringing on people from all sorts of different backgrounds, skill sets, types of businesses, disciplines, like what they're focused on. And that way you can kind of steal the best of all of them and kind of mold it into your own. So I launched with 10 because I felt like the premise wouldn't really be clear if I just launched with like one or two or three, because you wouldn't get the wide array of people, right? So I had a, a B2B SaaS founder, I had a D2C e-commerce founder, I had a positioning consultant, uh, a Facebook ads guru. Like it just spans the gamut and that way I can really deliver on on that premise. That's so awesome, man. So I'm really excited to check out uh, some of the other episodes. I've only listened to the one with Jay Kunzo just cuz like, I'm yeah. like we're both like mutual big fans of him and Oh man. He does some awesome stuff. I think he didn't he recently just rebrand or relaunch a podcast or something recently too. Yeah, I think he rebranded his his personal site. Um, but Jay is one of those people where I was like, man, there are so many good ideas from this. I, I've been a huge fan. I've been reading all his blog posts, listening to his podcast. I've followed him for a long time. But in our episode, you talk about some of the things that I learned that I've been taking away is uh, he's like really big on like having a really strong podcast premise. And like that idea, I just thought, oh man, you can take that to so many 
other things because basically this whole thing is like it's not what content you explore it's how you explore that content so like take a marketing podcast right and it's well okay this is a podcast about marketing but like for me for everything is marketing it's okay this is a podcast that explores every facet and dimension of marketing from people from all sorts of different you know backgrounds and skill sets not just the you know one or two kind of focused ones and like you could take that to a blog to a newsletter to like a video show you could take that to even outside of like content in general you could take that to your uh, your value proposition right like it's not what you deliver it's how you deliver it and so that was one of the things where i was like man like this podcast is helping me <laughs> if no one else i'm getting some good ideas from this yeah honestly i mean even just from him tweeting out a lot of that stuff too like if you follow anything he does his blogs his podcasts it all kind of goes around the same thing and i totally agree with that for this show for mind Mel, the premise really is for me to share with people tools tactics and strategies that will help them in their personal and creative lives and well, the last episode we did record, we definitely got into there. We definitely did all those things. So I'm going to try to bring those back out. I still have some of my notes off to the side here, some things that I wanted to bring back up. And that's kind of the, one of the reasons I love chatting with you last time and I had you on the podcast because you are doing so many things and you've kind of taken this sort of, sort of like solopreneur path lately, which I think is so cool. I mean, I think we're kind of doing roughly the same thing. I'm doing a couple no-code projects myself on the side of this podcast. And that's one of the reasons I want to chat with you because they're so awesome. I mean, seeing what you've done with Swipe Files, seeing how you've built Hey Marketers, all these projects that you've built using no-code and you've kind of done yourself. And then on top of that, doing all this marketing. And then it wasn't until recently that I knew that you actually created all those courses and everything. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of juggling, obviously, but you've done them in like succession, which is really cool. So the first one that you did, um, well, I think it was while you're at Bear Metrics, was Hey Marketers, right? And yeah. that was completely uh, a no-code project. So how did you start that thing? How did you kind of grow it? And what were sort of some of the takeaways from it, from creating that job board? I think since I was 19, I've known that I wanted to be... Like my end goal is to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to like go out and do my own thing, start things. I'm just like, I'm a starter. And I like going out and like creating your ideas, right? Like realizing the ideas you have in your head. So I've always had in mind like, oh, I'm looking for excuses to like learn stuff. It was actually, it was like October, November of like 2018, I want to say, um, where I like got introduced to the whole no code movement. I started following Ben Tossel. He created his first iteration of MakerPad, which was uh, my new co. And I was one of the first like customers and members, like played around with it for a while, learned some basic stuff. That's how I got into Webflow. Basically what happened was in, I think it was March of 2019, I want to say, I was doing this campaign for Bearmetrics where I was reaching out to past customers and asking them basically what it would take for them to become a customer again, just doing some like basic customer research. So I sent out the email, this guy replies and he's like, Hey, I would love to hop on a call and like tell you my, my experience, but also like I love what you're doing by following me on Twitter. Uh, would love to learn like how we can find someone like you. Basically, we're hiring for like a you know early stage kind of marketer for our SaaS company. Uh, so what if we swap? I'll spend 15 minutes asking you. You spend the rest of the call asking me, and we can call it a day. So I thought that's perfect. Great. Why not? So asked him my things, and then he started asking me. And so you know who are you? What do you do? What's your day to day look like? And then we got to how did you find your metrics? So well, I, I followed Josh on Twitter and you know, kind of plugged into like the bootstrapper SaaS community. So I was following, you know, a couple of people and uh, he thought, well, okay, if I was hiring someone like you, like where, where would you look? So I was like, well, rework, remote, uh, rework remotely, uh, remote. Okay. Like all the remote. And he was like, oh, well, ours isn't a remote job. And then we were kind of like looked at each other. We're like, oh, I don't know where I would, I would post this. And he was like, 
well, man, if I have a, a couple extra weekends, I would build like a job board just for marketers because like we're dying to find a place to, you know, to post this and, and to get in front of the right people. I was like, you know, it's a good idea. I was like, you know what? Give me a couple of weeks. I'm going to come back. I'm going to build it. And you can be my first customer. He's like, deal, done. So I went back to uh, my new co, which had by then become MakerPad. I remembered that there was like a tutorial of how to build a job board through Webflow. Three weekends, I spun it up, went back to him, asked him to post. Um, he did. He was my first customer. And then I went back and kind of like backfilled a lot of the other jobs and just kind of like scrapes and and posted. Launched on Crowdaton. And kind of the rest is history. It, it's uh, it's hummed along on its own. And actually, an update from the first recording that we did was uh, I actually sold the majority stake of it in November to a guy who's like really he he knows what he's doing with job boards. So I'm still on. I still have about twenty percent, and I'm like an advisor role. But uh, he's he's going to take it and run with it. So I can share that now. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, that's great. Yeah. Congrats, man. That's it's always a good uh, position to be able to see things kind of go off and flourish on their own, right? And be like, yeah, maybe there's someone else running it or it's kind of self-running. That's awesome. Congrats, man. That's really, really big. I mean, it it was going on its own and it was fine, but it had kind of plateaued. And I knew that Mm. in order to get to the next level, I would need to put in a lot of work and a lot of things that were outside of my comfort zone, especially on the the tech side of things. And I just knew that I wasn't the right person to like handle all that. Um, So actually I posted on Twitter and and asked, uh, it was kind of a sneaky way, but I just asked, Hey, uh, thinking about selling hand marketers, like what would be an appropriate price? And I just had like hundreds of people reach out and be like, I'd be interested in like, you know, trying to negotiate. But once he reached out, I knew that he would probably be the best candidate and we managed to find a, a good agreement. And I mean, I think the biggest takeaway is like you're able to start it up yourself without any code, without having to hire developers, yeah. right? And that's Three the weekends. power of no code. Yeah. And it's so quick. That's insane. Three mm-hmm. weekends. Yeah. And it was like a pretty good business. So from there, was that when you decided to stop working with Bare Metrics and kind of go all in? Or what was it until you started Swipe Files? Yeah, it was until I started Swipe Files. So after Hey Marketers, I then created a course, Mental Models for Marketing, and that went really, really well. And then I basically turned around and did the same thing again a month later and created refactoring growth. Like a month later, turned around and started working on swipe files um, because, again, through kind of Twitter's serendipity, uh, I was following this guy named Sako. He was creating this amazing PS4 prototypes through Webflow. I was just like mind blown. And then he did a giveaway where he's like, hey, I'll build someone's prototype for free. Uh, you know, just like pitch me your idea and then retweet. And so I did. And I pitched him on this idea that I had. And I have this big, long kind of like file of. Uh, business ideas and, and my Notion doc. And um, it's kind of like went through, I was like, oh, that, I, we could probably do that in Webflow. And so I pitched him on it. He was turned around and was like, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going I'm to pick you and like seven other people. We're all going to do it together. And it'll be like a, a no code rumble kind of idea, like an accelerator. So we started working on that. And that was the first version of Swipe Files. And that was like in the middle of the pandemic, literally it was March, 2020, we broke around on Swipe Files. And, you know, I think at that point too, just being in quarantine, I kind of knew like, yeah, I don't really want to like work full time anymore. Like, I'd rather do consulting. I was getting kind of bored. I knew that there was a lot of other things, and especially Swifehouse was getting really promising because even with like these weekly teardowns that I was doing, I was getting a good amount of customers and members. And I knew that there was so many other things that I could do on top of it that if I just had like the time and the focus to be able to do it, that it could be something much bigger. So in September, that kind of all culminated. And so I felt it's the main thing that I'm working on. It's not the only thing, but that's the thing that I think will help me unlock my time and. It's looking pretty promising. So there's a few things I want to get into from that. So the first one, obviously, just maybe you can explain sort of what Swipe Files as the community and as the product is. 
Um, there's a few terms in there. So, so people might not actually know what a swipe file is. I think you mentioned it briefly at the very beginning. And you mentioned like teardowns. Yeah, totally. So I'm glad you asked because uh, it is very much like marketing jargon and a lot of pe- other people don't know what it is. But it's it's a cool concept. I think it's actually really good for for this show because I was actually I was just talking to someone else earlier and uh, they were like, you know, swipe file is like a thing that's like really specific to marketing. And But I, I told them, actually, no, it's actually... A swipe file is like a thing that marketers took from something else. And uh, if you get into like the whole personal knowledge management space uh, with like building a second brain and settle casting and a commonplace book, it's all about basically having a system to curate ideas, save knowledge and information to reference it later, and then be able to organize it in some good way so that you can go and find it later. And basically you're, you're building an extension of your brain of, okay, if I want to say this for later, how can I do that in the most efficient way possible? So we see, we see this in all sorts of other industries. Like for example, in the like design space, they call it a mood board, right? Where you just like, you create a whole bunch of things that you like, and then like you take from that and create other mood boards for other projects or clients or whatever it is. You know, even authors, authors keep a commonplace book. That was like their version of it. Um, now we're seeing, you know, Tago Forte really pioneered the building a second brain idea where um, he has para and you build it all in a tool like Evernote or, or Notion. So a swipe file is basically like the marketing version of a Zettelkasten, of a some sort of like file or system for saving ideas and being able to reference them for later. Uh, so you, you swipe it into a file. So any like landing page, any ad, any email where you're like, oh, that's a really good one. I'm going to save that for later so I can reference it. Um, you swipe it into your file, whatever that might be. And again, it could be a Notion doc, could be a Google Drive. Um, could just You could just drop it into your Apple Notes. doesn't really matter. There's a tool I really like called MyMind. It's just MyMind.com. That's like perfect for this type of thing because you can literally save anything and everything and then like search for it later. But that's in essence what a swipe file is. And the reason why I had the idea for swipefiles.com was I was creating the affiliate program for Parametrics. And I was like, what the heck goes on a landing page to promote an affiliate program for a SaaS company? Like, I don't know. I've never seen anyone else do this. I mean, I probably have, but I haven't seen their landing page. I don't know what to put on there. So I had to go do a whole bunch of research. I went to, you know, ConvertKit and to a whole bunch of others. And I just thought, and then I DM'd them, like, hey, why'd you create this th- this way? Or like, what'd you change? Or like, what would you advise for us? And I was like, what if there was a place where I didn't have to go out do all this? I could just search and find, you know, affiliate marketing landing page and then get a teardown of like, what makes it great? Basically, why is this a good example? Because there's a whole bunch of sites out there. There's swipefile.com, there's swiped.co. And they kind of just curate anything and everything which is helpful to a certain degree, but it's more helpful to learn why it was swiped, why it was saved. A teardown is basically like an analysis of something, right? In this case, a landing page and ad, the good and bad of it, essentially you're, you're commenting on it. So that was the first iteration of Swipe Files was basically writing these teardowns on these examples that I was curating. So you could save it for your own Swipe File. And today what's evolved into is I call it content community and courses to help you master marketing. So the content is the teardowns. I also have like a database of like a curated swipe file just for you. If you need like a Kickstarter, just like save into your Notion doc. There's the community. So it's a private community built on Circle. It's just basically a place for people to find like-minded people, answer questions, network, get to know people, have friends, you know, find your people. Uh, and then courses. So I bundled in refactoring growth, mental models for marketing, working on some other ones as well eventually. So that's what Swipe Files is today. It's essentially a glorified membership site. 
Yeah, totally glorified, right? Like literally in like the best sense possible. Like instead of just going in and just having like, maybe it's like, I don't know, it used to be just Slack channels. Now people are going on Circle, right? So circle.so, everyone's just kind of creating these like multi-channel community and then having a course with it. And then people can kind of learn from each other. But I like that you've added the content side of that. And that's really cool. You have like this sort of triad and you just kind of mentioned something before we got into this, which is like, it'll help you unlock your time. So it's like this like leverage, right? You're kind of like, building yourself out of it like you're going to have the community for people to ask questions you have the courses so you can teach people rather than having to consult them one-on-one and then obviously the teardowns i'm sure at some point you'll have other people adding to it or however that community grows but that's really interesting i want to hear your thought process on that on sort of the leverage side of things because last time we chatted about this idea of like stair-stepping entrepreneurship. So I want to mm-hmm. know where this kind of fits in that. And I want to hear your whole philosophies on that. Yeah. So again, with the end goal of mine being like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be able to work on different businesses and business ideas and just like tinker and, and start things. I think that the biggest thing, like actually I heard on a podcast the other day um, that everyone is either moving away from something or they're moving towards something or a combination of both, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like the first step to really being an entrepreneur and like unlocking your creativity and like being able to work on what you want to is just moving away from and getting away from trading your time for money. So I'm doing a lot of consulting. I have been doing a lot of consulting. I was doing, you know, full-time jobs. Um, but having an asset like Swipe Files where it's a membership site and it's recurring revenue, one day will hopefully unlock my time to be able to work on whatever I want to. And then there's no longer relationship between how much time I put into it and the paycheck that I take home every day. And it's not in like a sleazy, like passive income sense, but more just in the sense that like I am scaling myself and that way this thing is not dependent on me and I am not dependent on, you know, putting in time in order to be able to, you know, eat and put food on the table for my wife, my dog. <laughs> and uh, so, so I felt like the first thing where I think, you know, this is something that is clearly in in my uh, area of expertise. It's, if you think of like the, um, what's it called? It's, uh, uh, there's a, a Japanese word, but it's about the intersection oh, ik- of- Ikikai or whatever. Yes. Ik- yes. Ikagi, ik- ikigai. Yeah. I forget yeah. how ikigai, you pronounce it. I think it's, yeah. Ikigai. Yeah. Uh, but it's basically the intersection of like what you love, what you're good at, what the world needs and what other people need. And I felt like Swipe Files was something for me where I, I'm not a programmer. I love SaaS and I love software. That's kind of the background that I come from, but I can't do that right now. So what's something I can do on my own that will help me get out of this trading time for money? And Swipe Files is like, you know, the combination of all these things where I felt like um, I, that could be the thing. And then I can go and do other businesses. I can do other side projects. I can build on top of it. But that first step being I can unlock my time, remove myself from being the bottleneck on the amount of money that I make every month, basically. Yeah. I mean, that's the key, right? I think that's the way to go for sure. And I think the other thing you brought up, Icky Guy, or as I don't know, do you follow like David Perel? Because yeah, you're in the personal oh, yeah. knowledge minute. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think we're in that same Twitter sphere of all those awesome people. Yeah, he talks about um, building your personal monopoly, right? So I think mm-hmm. you're starting to build that right now, definitely in sort of the B2B SaaS area and B2B SaaS marketing specifically. Now mixing that with personal management, it really seems like Swipe Files in particular has become sort of that like personal monopoly for you, which is it's, so, it's been so awesome to see definitely feels like it's like the the base of something big so it's really cool to kind of see you um do all this stuff early on and i think it's really interesting too that you kind of bring that up because the idea of knowledge management plus all of the the marketing content out there has been something that i've been grappling with myself for a while and i'm just like holy shit man like there's so much on the internet and then like me more so on the design side i'm like okay like 
there's so many websites to draw inspiration from and then you need specific types of websites like like you said like a an affiliate landing page or what does a sign a good sign up page look like or what does like a really good integrations page like whatever it is for SaaS or whatever kind of website you're building the one thing that's really cool and you brought up Sako we were chatting about this on an episode before where like the internet like no one's really doing that much innovative stuff aside from actual product design when it comes from the websites you're basically following patterns of the web like almost every other SaaS website is going to steal from stripe like something from the stripe website right um so i find that really interesting that you're taking all of that and then putting it and mixing products with personal knowledge management and that's kind of where the swipe files come in so for me i was like holy shit there's so much out there how do i save all this there's all these designs websites and they copy so maybe we can kind of get into that now. So I know you save some stuff or most of your stuff with Rome now. And I think you're mentioning just Notion for a few things. So I'd love to hear how you save all of this stuff when you do come across something nice. And then that process of saving it for yourself. But then also, when does it go to swipe files and when does it go out to the community? Yeah, I, I don't think that I have this process like nailed down, but I'll just like walk through um, sort of what it looks like today and uh, how I'd like it to work at least eventually. Cool. It's it's fairly streamlined, but basically I do all of my thinking and writing and brainstorming in Rome. And there's a few things that pipe into Rome. Like I use Readwise to save quite a few things, especially from my Kindle, which I do all my book reading through. And that allows me to do something. I also use a podcast app called Air. Uh, I think it's technically air quotes, but basically you can take notes within a podcast episode and not just like on a high level, but like for a specific segments of audio and that way i can like directly go back and, and reference that piece of audio and so those both uh go in and feed back into rome on the swipe file side of things if i see something that i like i'll save it in two places which is my mind and then i'll save it in notion so notion is where i actually keep like my my literal swipe file uh my mind as well but like notion is like the thing that i that i reference and uh and that's what eventually makes it into swipe files uh, for members. And then like, that's how I create the, you know, the, the database. And that's normally what I use for myself when I'm kind of drawing off of, uh, as well. And then my mind is like, kind of like a catch all, like I, I save everything through there, tweet threads, articles, um, images, ads, email, like everything gets saved in my mind. So it's, if, if it's not in one of those other places, it's probably in my mind. And it's not, if I need it in one of those places, I'll probably find it in my mind and duplicate it over there. Um, but I think that that's, probably the best like high level overview of how they all kind of work together yeah that's awesome and i just reached out to you the other day asking you for a link to get my mind and i actually started using it it's amazing i think it's it's such a great tool for designers for marketers right like it's so cool my favorite aspect of it is that you don't need to go and kind of categorize things right it just uses ai to categorize it which is insane uses ai to like pick out the colors from the image so you can literally type in a color green and it'll show you all the images that are green like it's wild like it's really really well done there's a few things that i thought were like kind of changed my mind on things because with notion and you brought up tiago forte's building a second brain that's very much like you know you're categorizing things and things have to fit in sort of a single box but with my mind it kind of goes all over the place obviously you can just use the search but how do you go about recalling some of the stuff you mentioned like saving like tweets and tweet threads in there when or how do you go and retrieve some of that stuff because I find myself like saving a lot of shit, but it's a, a matter of making it useful, right? Yeah. Um, I, I would like to hear how you kind of go about that. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole reason why I like and you know, I use Rome in my mind is like the 
the most central places for how I um, reference and and use something is because it's very decentralized and because there's links back and forth. Um, with Notion, I tried using Notion to like organize my entire life, but I found myself overwhelmed with the amount of structure and like hierarchy that it required to just like keep it a sane system basically with Rome, I can dump everything in there and like, no matter where it is, as long as there's a backlink, I can like find it and it's got a great search. Same thing with my mind that you can just type in. It's actually one of the reasons why I really like my mind for personal knowledge management is because you can type in just like a keyword and it'll also find that keyword within an article, a tweet that you saved, like not just like the title of it or like what you tagged it, but like literally within it. I don't know of anything else that does that to that degree. So in that way, I I actually have, as far as like making it useful, I think that the search is like the real key there because nothing else allows you to search so powerfully other than Rome and and my mind, because then I can type in any keyword, any phrase, anything that I might like use to kind of like, oh, I know that I phrased it this way or like I described it this way or maybe this tag that I can find it that way. Rather than going through folders and like trying to filter, which isn't always uh, foolproof, I'm not even sure where to start. I, I have pretty good recall. I have like a terrible memory, uh, short term and long term. Like I couldn't tell you literally what I did this morning. But if I'm writing something and I think about uh, a specific theme, like there's tweets going through my mind of like what people said, and like I'm pretty good at finding it and referencing it later. And so my mind and Rome are like really good ways for me to um, like I know it exists. I just need to go find it. Um, but most of the time I find myself using that recall to actually make it useful, but other times I'll just, you know, if I'm kind of like drawing blank and, um, you know, the cursor is blinking in front of me and I have nothing, then I'll just go through and start exploring. I think that's one of the magical things about it too, is like, it's not just like a, uh, a linear kind of like path to like this one specific information. You can kind of like wander and meander and like, oh, that's interesting. I forgot to save that. Or like, what is this about? And one of the other parts of this whole equation is uh, for the intake is a tool called Mailbrew. And that's what I use for a lot of like the intake. So it's like a save later slash central place for all of your RSS feeds. And so that's where I read all my newsletters, a few blogs. Um, I'll save things for later to read through, you know, my browser, whatever it is. And that's another great way to then, you know, I'll highlight it to read wise or I'll save it in my mind. Um, and then it's, it's there. Right. Uh, but sometimes if I'm not sure also, I'll just go scroll through Mailbrew and start meandering. I think that's a really good point. I think it was like last week I went through David Perel's, he did like a workshop on how to write for the internet. It's on, it's mm. on YouTube now. I'll link it. Have you seen it or have you done his course or anything? I think I saw an early version. I was actually registered for his webinar, his like workshop last week, and I missed it. Um, but uh, I mean, he's, I mean, I read all of his stuff like religiously. Yeah. I was just going through old tweets. It's today, awesome, actually. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's awesome. It's so crazy. I think he basically put all of that into this one webinar. It's on YouTube. I'll send it to you after. It was amazing, and he talks about the idea like you shouldn't have to like think about what you're going to write. It should be all there. You should be saving the stuff you mentioned, like highlighting yeah. stuff from Kindle and like clipping stuff. It should be all there. And then the process of writing is really just putting things together, like clicking like Lego together, right? Exactly. And it's cool because I think, yeah, you do a lot of writing yourself, especially for the course. I'm sure it's the exact same thing when you're building a course. It's all these things that you found from oh, yeah. book, from blog posts, from everywhere. And you're just kind of bringing it together and then making it easily digest- digestible for people to consume and to actually transfer that knowledge, right? You're like, here's all this stuff that I could put together into a neat package and just plop it into your mind. I think we're all waiting for some sort of neural link where we can just hit download and we get it to our brain. <laughs> but there's no fun in that, right? We want to be no, able to like not. go through the process. And I think that's awesome. And I think 
what's really really cool here is that same process for design right it's like getting all these like design pieces and just plugging it together especially for things like webflow you're either gonna buy a template or you're gonna get some sort of ui kit and you're just gonna start smashing shit together right i think your uh your swipe file site wasn't that based off of a template i think i own the same one yeah. and it's amazing right yeah, it's fantastic. I'm super stoked that I managed to snag it and no one else I know is like really using it. Um, but yeah, like there's no, my, my whole thing, I, I'm really, really uh, lazy as far as like creating things. I'm I'm all for, um, I've always been like a, a curator and a collector and um, like a diligent note taker. And uh, I'm always like writing down ideas. And I think it was actually, again, when I was in college and I was, I had these long commutes and I was uh, I would just, any idea that popped in my head, I would just write it down. I got in the habit of, you know, I had like this ginormous uh, Apple Notes folder, just like ideas. And you get in the habit of that and eventually you can make use of it later. But, you know, now like, dude, I hate reinventing the wheel. I hate starting from scratch. And that's what I'm trying to bring to marketing, right? That's kind of like maybe part of my personal monopoly theme is like never start from scratch. People are always trying to come up with new marketing ideas. There is no such thing as a new marketing idea. You can only remix old marketing ideas. And in fact, you'll be you'll do yourself a favor if you study things that people did 50 years ago. If you study the, you know, uh, I was one of the people I had on, on the podcast is a, a woman named Ashley Levesque. And she was the marketer for a robotics manufacturer. And they had so many cool marketing ideas and things that were like she was used to coming from like a traditional like retail space so she was like let's like throw on like events and like let's do cocktail parties and like let's do giveaways and like they like took the industry by storm because no one else had thought to do of that for like robotics manufacturing right and so if you really get outside of your echo chamber stop sitting down with a blank page and start looking at what other people are doing and trying to remix them for yourself yeah, totally. I think there's like, I think people have that like mentality. They have to start from scratch. It needs to be an original idea. I think like in a lot of things, even with products, you just kind of mentioned it there. Like there's no really new ideas. It's just ideas that have been either uh, evolved through the years or ideas have, that have been smashed together. And then now you're also going to be smashing it together. Everything's a mix up. Everything's a mashup. Everything is a fucking remix of other stuff that's happened in the past. Um, and that's how we'll get new stuff, right? That's kind of one of the premises for this podcast which is like one week i'll have you on one week i'll have like someone else from it's totally like not even marketing like literally nothing that has nothing to do with anything bring it all together and eventually these ideals will start clicking and connecting we start bringing ideas you're already doing that in the marketing sphere within marketing there's like i don't know i don't know how many little uh niches within marketing but you know there's with software and all the different products and at the end of the day you're just marketing is just sort of you know getting the word out there but you know, I'm not going to butcher. It. You're you're the expert here on this. I definitely want to hear what your thoughts are on like what marketing actually is. And you know, you know after going through all these different uh, niches and subcategories of marketing, what have you found to be the essence of marketing? What works no matter what, tried and true, across industries. Yeah. So if if you really look at, I'll give you kind of like a couple different definitions that will help kind of triangulate how to think about marketing. And I encourage people to really um, try to start from a blank slate and really think from first principles when you think about marketing, because now, like just through like passive absorption, you start to gather all these ideas and assumptions and connotations about what a word means, especially something like marketing, which is very like broad and kind of ambiguous and can mean different things to different people. But try to start from scratch, think from first principles. 
if you literally look at the definition of the word, it is marketing, right? So like, what does it mean to market? And like, what is like the ongoing version of that thing, right? So to market something means to, to bring it to market, right? It literally means, oh, hey, I built this um, this wooden table and I'm going to bring it to the market to sell it. I'm going to I'm going to place it somewhere in front of where people are. That way people know that it exists and that maybe that they will want it. Right. And in marketing is I'm going to come back every week to the farmer's market and I'm just going to sit here with my wooden table and showcase it. Right. Um, So we literally think about what it means to bring something to market. You know, marketing is to bring something to market. But I think a little bit more um, philosophically, the definition I really like is earning trust at scale, because if we really get down to it, trust, especially today is like currency. Everyone's attention is going, you know, here and there and you have clickbait and you have uh, like all sorts, like there's never been more sources of information and things that want your attention. And what happens over time is that people learn which sources of information and which inputs are signal and which ones are noise. Like which ones do I trust? Which ones do I not trust? And so you want to earn trust. Trust has to be earned. It can't be bought, right? It's, there's a lot of different trust signals out there about um, you know, what's your authority? Are there endorsements? Um, are you telling the truth or not? Like basically how can you tell if something is trustworthy or not? And then how can you do that at scale? Right? So I would define sales as uh, earning trust one by one or individually, whereas marketing is earning trust at scale. It's, uh, it's one to many, right? You, you can leverage sort of like the infinite scale and reach of the internet, for example. Um, where there is no limit on how many people can come through the door or will pass in front of you in your store. It's, you know, your store is, um, it's in the cloud, it's in the internet, like any number of people can come at any given time. And so you think about marketing that way as earning trust at scale, it, it really changes your perspective from here's something that I have and I want you to have it. So give me something for it rather than like, let me help you with something. And marketing is actually an act of service. Like I'm going to, I'm going to earn your trust and it's all these uh, exchanges, right? Where anytime people change hands, anytime a contract is signed, anytime a, a link is clicked, there's some sort of exchange with trust. Someone gives you their trust and you have to earn it. You have to give it back in return because if it's clickbait, guess what? They're probably going to second guess it next time. Or if it's a really crappy product, they're going to return it, ask for a refund. They're going to you know, make a big deal about it on Twitter and kind of slam you online. So everything has to be earned and it's these continuous exchanges. But that, that's how I would think about marketing. That's how I try to teach people too. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, I love that. And I, again, that just totally brought up from our last conversation, you obviously bringing this concept up. And there's something that was the first time I've heard it, honestly, when you talked about it. And it makes so much sense. How can you earn that trust, you know, when you're just starting out, when you're a brand new product, you're a brand new service, and you don't really have that trust yet? How can you first gain that trust? Yeah. So I actually got this phrase. I, I swiped it from Alex Hillman of uh, The Tiny MBA, which is his book. And actually, that's that tweet thread where he talked about earning trust at scale turned into The Tiny MBA, and it's a little ebook. Uh, he's a partner at Stacking the Bricks and the creator of the 30 by 500 course. Awesome guy, really smart guy. And that really latched on to me. And actually, the context of it is um, he has this phrase where he says that uh, if done correctly, marketing and teaching look basically indistinguishable. So you really think, about, okay, so what is teaching? Well, teaching is um, an exchange of knowledge. It's here's something that I've learned, that I've experienced, um, some patterns that I've recognized, some, uh, an outcome that you want, and I'm going to show you how you can get that same information, that same outcome, et cetera. So at the end of the day, marketing, I think, is really an act of teaching, but teaching isn't really the right word there. 
it's really an act of, of giving, right? And so you give and then you get in return. You don't always, like, it's not always a one-to-one thing where like, oh, I give you this thing and you give me this thing in, it, uh, in return. It's but more like it's, transactional keep, that way, right? Right. It's, it's more transactional, but as a relationship, it's I'm going to give, 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 not really expecting anything in return, but knowing one day there's a chance that I might earn the right to get something in return, to ask for the sale, um, to to ask for a favor, right? To, to get the share, to get the click, et cetera. So if you really want to think about uh, how do I do marketing? How do I build an audience from scratch? The first question should be, what can I give that would be valuable to someone else? And that thing could just be your product. That thing could be information. That that could be something that someone wants to do that's completely unrelated to your product. In fact, I think a, a lot of the best marketers are, are YouTubers because YouTubers figure out what do people are searching for and like, what could I make a video on that I could teach to someone else that they can go and do and I will earn subscribers that way. I'll earn clicks. I'll earn ad revenue that way. Right. So if we take that same approach, I mean, that's really where we get everything from um, content marketing to conferences with workshops and talks. Like everyone is learning to get something. And if you have something that you can give them, then later you can exchange that again, actually it goes back to this, uh, this idea of trust. Toby Lutke talks about this idea of a trust battery. And he says, think about making deposits and withdrawals from a battery. And if you're always making withdrawals from a trust battery with someone else, for example, where you share it, then eventually it's going to be depleted and you're not going to be able to withdraw anything else. There's no, nothing else you can ask of that person to give you. But if you're always making deposits, especially if you're making more deposits than withdrawals, then you'll always have something to withdraw. One day it might be a purchase. One day it might be a favor. One day it might be a click but you're making those withdrawals and you have to keep making those deposits. And it's especially important to make the deposits first, to give first and to have that give first mentality. And then later you can withdraw or you can uh, make that ask later. In fact, I, I think I mentioned it last time, but uh, I had this tweet a while back that was a little bit con- controversial, but I basically said like, my theory is that anyone can replace their income and basically start a business by giving themselves 18 months where the first six months, you do something completely for free. And then you do like a free year of whatever it is of, of service of member um, site. This is mostly applicable to content, but it could really work across any industry if you wanted to. And then after that year, if you're giving value, because you've already built up the trust, you've given so much for so long, the money's going to take care of itself. Like you can charge whatever you want. You can charge any amount of people. Like they're going to be there um, asking or to take their money, right? Because you have something of value to them. And so that's where that give first mentality comes from. Because if you're trying to build an audience by just taking and by just making asks and just trying to like manipulate people and do a lot of sales, it's not going to work because people don't have anything to reference. They're like, Hey dude, my trust battery is empty. I'm sorry, but like, I don't really want to do this with you. But if they're like, man, this guy, like David Perel, for example, um, he's taught me so much. I've gained so many, I've followed so many interesting people from it. I've learned so much. Uh, he saved me so much time. Like the least I can do is buy his $2,000 course. Right. Uh, and at that point he's really, really earned it. And it's made, it's a no brainer because he's given way more than I have given back to him. So to answer your question, I think, uh, if you want to start building an audience, you want to start marketing, just think about what you can give and how you can give it for a good long amount of time before you make any ask in return. Yeah. And I think like the big part there was giving yourself that runway, right? Like obviously this is so serendipitous because I was just reading, I think I mentioned this before actually in our last chat and I definitely mentioned on like the last two episodes, I'm not done this book yet, but I've been reading Optionality by Richard Meadows. Highly recommend it. And if you're into Rome research, I'm pretty sure he's an investor and he he helped them out in the early days. 
still helping them out, I believe. He mentions Rome in the book and he mentions uh, Zenelcast and all the stuff. So what was really interesting is he talks about optionality in the sense of like an on-off switch and kind of what we're getting at here, especially when you're starting something new, it's like, that's going to be like sort of like not your passion project, but it's going to be that thing that you want to start uh, your entrepreneurial venture. You should have enough money saved up that you don't have to rely on getting money right away from that thing. In your case, it's swipe files, building a community, doing YouTube videos. Because if you're like, if your income is tied to that content or the project or whatever it is you're putting out, then you're like, it's going to suffer, right? Because you're like, you're, you're wanting something in return and it's going directly against what you're just saying of like, you know, putting deposits in and giving stuff away for free. You're going to be thinking about, I want, I want, or I need, I need that money. But if you have the money saved up or, you know, you go in parallel, you're working a full-time job or a part-time job and that's paying your bills, then, you know, simultaneously you could do these things, uh, which I think is kind of the way to go. There's always this, this idea of like juggling more than one thing. And some people are like, oh, you have to go all in. Again, I think you're a really good uh, contender of the opposite of being able to do multiple things. So maybe just for those people who are kind of thinking about that, how would you go about juggling multiple things? And you did that at the beginning, right? You were working on bare metrics and doing a few things. How did you manage it? What have you learned? What are some takeaways? Was there something that you would have done differently? Something you'd do differently now to make all these things work and and reach that next stepping stone in the stair-stepping entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think that I'm definitely guilty, if I have to be honest, of um, trying to sort of monetize too early, Uh, probably because I, you know, not even because I needed the money, but just because I, I wanted to make sure that what I was doing was was valuable enough to charge money for. But I probably could have, for example, just done that run a pre-sale and then like taken it, but then like make made it free after that, for example, for any things I've done for pay marketers. Um, that kind of stifled growth was, you know, I initially made it completely free. And actually I did a um a pay what you want model for a long time, which worked really well. But I think that if I had just done it for free for two years and then, you know, got a really good amount of traffic and subscribers then I could have charged anything I wanted to post a job. So now that's what we're doing is we made it completely for free and we're still needing to pay what we want a little bit, but like we're manually curating a lot of the jobs and then eventually we'll be able to cash in on that and, you know, charge a, a pretty penny for each job posting. Same thing with uh, the courses could have done like a free thing at first or like a free run and then later charge for them. Swipe files. Uh, I did for free for quite a long time, but I was had the option of getting members and I, I did get members, which is great. But at the same time, I think that if I had to go back, like that's where that tweet came from originally, where I was talking about how you can replace your income in, in 18 months was I would really focus on how can I put myself in a position to do something completely for free for 18 months and build up this massive audience and like make so many deposits and people's trust batteries that eventually once the 18 month mark comes around, I can flip a switch and then I can immediately replace my income and and also never have to work, you know, worry about money again, basically. So there's really, there's only two like functions in business and it's the product and it's the marketing. And I think what I've learned is that it's difficult to really do them both the same way at the same time. When you have a, an MVP product that's like really new, you can't start charging a lot of money right away. You have to discount it a lot or you have to create a free plan or you have to run like an alpha and a beta, or you have to just like test it out at a steep discount, you know, one time just to like, see if it works. Same thing on the marketing side of things. Um, if you're, if you're like starting out and you're like buying all these ads and you're like spinning up these programs, um, like it's not going to pay off because that's not really what you need. 
the, the direction I was going with that was that people always start with the product and then they do the marketing later. But really, you should start with the marketing because that's what you're giving away for free. And then you should do the product later or not do the product, but you should charge for the product a little bit later. So specifically for me, I think for swipe files, I would have started this whole process 18 months ago and I would have built up, you know, a huge free community, free teardowns, free content, free, you know, whatever the, the thing is. Got people involved and gave them like 100% off for a year, but then knowing that, hey, if this thing is valuable in a year, I'll be able to reap the benefits of that. And uh, so I, I think that that's a good way to also balance it when you're working on the side, because if you already have a good stream of income, why charge for something if you don't actually need the money? Um, like save that for later when you do need it <laughs> and leverage all the free stuff that you're doing to build a bigger audience to get more customers later. Totally. And again, that's like the compound interest and like investing mindset. Um, I brought yeah. this up, I think on another episode, I talked to um, Danny Miranda, who's a podcaster. Yeah, We had a great conversation where he went from being sort of like a drop shipper and that drop shipping mentality of like, hey, I need money right now to then, you know, taking a step back. He went back to live with his parents during the pandemic, which I think a lot of people did because it's just an uncertain time. But then he said, hey, I could just like, you know, bite the bullet, have some humility here and continue living with them. So that way I can focus on long-term stuff, which was like the podcast. He doesn't have to worry about monetizing the podcast. He doesn't have to worry about building community. He's just putting out free content. Yeah. And I think that's amazing. And I, and I came back with it and I told him like, hey, yeah, there's kind of like two mindsets there. And like from the investing world, you're either a trader or you're an investor. Are mm. you a trader or an investor? So he's like, man, I'm going to like take that. So I'm like, this has been a mental model that I've been now putting into so many different domains. And I think it works just as well with marketing. And it works exactly the way you're talking about it. Instead of like right away, like trying to do one for one transactional relationship, which will happen later on at scale, right? Once you've earned the trust, it eventually becomes very transactional at a certain point. But your product or your service or course, whatever it is, needs to be transformational, right? So yeah. it needs to have that sort of like compounding growth curve rather than like a linear curve. And I think that's like the perfect analogy, right? Because you want to uh, optimize for the long term. You don't so much want to just right away be like a day trader, day trading people's attention and I guess mm. trust in this point. Instead, you're investing it. You're making the deposits, the automatic deposits in hopes that in 5, 10, 20 years, however long it is, sometimes it takes that long to really get that growth curve. So that's been something that I've been bringing. But now it just brought something up for me that we haven't touched on yet that I really want to get into, which is yeah. mental models. Mm. And I would love for you to kind of explain that because you have the course on it. You kind of become like a little bit of a mental models guru, at least in my eyes. Um, I love to hear, like, you know, I'm sure for people who don't know what mental models are or like how they package them up, I love to hear your thoughts on it and how you've applied that to marketing and some of the stuff that you brought into the course. Yeah. So um, to give like a really quick definition, a mental model is basically just like a mental shortcut or heuristic or like simple framework that helps you. Uh, explain something more complex kind of going on in the world, essentially. So we talked about, for example, being an investor versus a trader. A mental model can be an analogy like that, or it could be an acronym, or it could be anything that basically helps you think through something without having to directly like reference it on a piece of paper, like step-by-step, step, or you have it basically saved in your head and you think, okay, I'm doing copywriting. Here's like a couple of frameworks and mental models that I can use. I'm doing investing. Here's a couple of frameworks and mental models that I can use. So basically it's just things that help you um, think through things better and make better decisions essentially. So again, I've, I've taken 
uh, an idea of mental models and have applied them to marketing. So that's kind of the, the personal monopoly there. The reason why I, whole, I started with this whole thing and why I created the course Mental Models for Marketing was I had started to save all these like concepts and frameworks that really helped me think through, these are the things I want to save and remember for later for any other experiment or tactic or channel I'm going to experiment with later. Um, and I was talking with friends and I was showing them, you know, like, oh, like, let me go like, see what this thing says. Or like, I remember this one way to think about this. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, can you share that with me? So I figured out oh, this thing might be, you know, interesting uh, for other people and decided to create a course out of it. But basically, yeah, my whole thing is just how do you apply like these general frameworks and mental models to something like marketing that has a very specific uh, use case. So I can go through a couple, but a, a couple of my favorite ones are the principles of persuasion. So this is Robert Caldini and he has like the six kind of things that get people uh, you know, basically to earn their trust and to persuade people. There's the stages of awareness, uh, which is even what Eugene Schwartz worked on back in the sixties, a long time ago. Um, there's the pirate metrics. Uh, I can go through any of them if you want to. What are some of the favorite ones that you find yourself coming back to most that come top to mind um, just in general? Yeah, one of the one of the big ones is definitely um, the principles of persuasion. And I don't think that there's like these aren't like the ones, right? There there's right. more, there's different versions of these. There's like subversions of each one of these. You know, but he talks about things like um, reciprocity, consistency, uh, social proof, liking, authority scarcity. And basically like, these are like the core pillars, according to what he says, of what gets people um, to do what you want them to do. So how do you get people to to take action? So if you have these ingredients, then you know that you're, you're going to have a better chance of persuading someone. And actually in my studies and in, in, in studying a lot of these, you know, principle of persuasion and mental models for marketing, actually, I felt like I kind of found like one of the granddaddies, uh, rental models of them all, which is a little bit lesser known. Uh, and again, thinking through first principles, which is another mental model, it's a little bit meta. It's called the human action model. And it's basically like, what gets people to do something that you want them to do? How do you get people to actually act? And um, and there's these three ingredients. Like one, you need someone to be dissatisfied with their current state of being, wherever they are, whatever they're doing. People have to be unhappy, which is like a really sobering kind of like interesting fact, um, but people have to be unhappy in order to take action. And speaking of uh, all these kind of ideas connecting, I was listening to a podcast with Nir Eyal today about his new book, Indistractable, which isn't super new, but uh, it's fairly new. And he was talking about how everyone is always trying to, again, talk about like moving away from something and moving towards something. Everyone, like all of humanity is always trying to move away from discomfort. We're trying to find something that makes us more comfortable. So it makes sense why the first ingredient for the human action model is that people have to be dissatisfied with their current state of being. Because otherwise, why would they do anything if they're perfectly comfortable with where they are and, what, and who they are? The second ingredient is you have to sort of like paint a picture and show them what could be. You have to show them an outcome, a tra transformation, a destination, something that they want. You have to create desire. And then the third ingredient is you have to show them a path that gets them from their current state to the future state of where they want to be. So from point A to point B, and it has to be like a realistic, achievable plan because a lot of, and this is actually one of the really key ingredients there is that what's missing from a lot of marketing is a lot of people talk about, you know, Hey, like, doesn't this suck? Or like, here's your pain point. Are you experiencing this thing? Look at how great our solution is, but they don't connect the dots between the two. And they especially don't make it achievable or realistic. It's like, Oh, you can totally do this, but it's going to cost you, 
a hundred grand in 12 months of your time and it may or may not work and you're gonna have to get on calls. And it's like, who wants to do that, right? Or it's like, you have to learn how to program, like who wants to do that? That's why no code is a whole thing. You have to learn how to do fill in the blank, right? And so that um, that third ingredient of a plan that makes it achievable and uh, is realistic for people um, is a third thing there. So again, that's another mental model for you. It's the, the human action model. I think more practical mental models is actually the stages of awareness. So again, this is something that uh, Eugene Schwartz, kind of one of the OG American marketers talked about, but he talked about how um, there's different milestones mentally that people need to achieve in order to get to the final stage of a sale. And he he, he frames it in reference to uh, levels of awareness or stages of awareness. So at the very right end of the spectrum, you have most aware, and it's basically like people know exactly what you sell, uh, what the offer is, why they need it. Like they just basically are at the point of pulling the trigger, of making a decision, of saying yes, signing the contract. You take one step back, you have product aware. So people know what you do. They're just not sure if you're the right solution for them. They have objections, hesitations, anxieties about switching. You take one step further back to the left, you have solution aware. So people know that you exist. They also know about all of your competitors. They're just not sure which one they should explore and how they compare. And then you take one step back, you also have uh, problem aware, which again is people know, I know I have a problem, um, but they don't know that there's a solution for it quite yet or what the right solutions are, how to think about it. And then the final one, the, the fifth one, all the way to the left of the spectrum is unaware or completely unaware. And so again, this is these are people who are satisfied with their current problems, basically. Like they are, they're not even sure that they have a problem. They're just perfectly fine you know, signing things on paper and faxing it over, like they're stuck in the old world or stuck in the old way of doing things. And the way that this applies is that for everything that you do, it should fit into, or it should fit into purpose of moving someone across that spectrum to becoming more aware. So think about, for example, if, if you're a completely new product in a new category and people aren't really even sure that they have a problem, then you're going to have to do a lot of teaching and education. And so telling them, Hey, like this is a, a brand new thing. And like, look at this like magical widget that we have. It's also your problem. You're like, do I have that problem? I don't have that problem. Like, what is this thing? Why should I care about it? I don't care about it. So you have to do a lot of education, actually like pinpoint, Hey, you do have this pain. Um, if this is you, like this is something that you should be aware of. Whereas, if you're in a really competitive market, like CRMs, for example, let's just take like B2B SaaS. Everyone knows what a CRM is, what it does, what pain points it solved. Uh, they just need to know how you do it better than everyone else, right? So in that case, everyone in that market usually is very product aware. So don't waste your time talking about how important a CRM is. Just get straight to the point about what's different about you and what the features are and how it specifically caters to them uh, in specific. So you can take that across any one of the, the stages of awareness, the five stages, and think about uh, which stage is most appropriate to the audience I want to reach. And how does that change the way that I would market to them? The message that I use, the offer that I make, the way that I describe it, what's on my landing page or different sets of landing pages, ads, emails, just tailor everything you do to which stage of awareness you think your audience is in. That's really interesting. And I think bringing that into the CRM space, you know, I was just playing around with Outseta today for a product I'm working on. And, you know, we're building our CRM and there's like the pipeline, right? The sales pipeline. And right. it's kind of like exactly what you're saying. Maybe it's like you take that heuristic, you bring the stages of awareness in there so you know where they're at. 
But how would you even know like what at what stage they they're at? Would you just go out and start asking them? Because it's really, I guess, you don't really know, right? Especially um, a cohort in general. I guess maybe a really good example of somebody we've been bringing up is like Notion, right? Like if you go on their website now, it's kind of like explaining what the product is. People don't know that mm-hmm. they have a problem, but they're kind of like hitting a different, a bunch of different problems. You could use it for school. You could use it for your CRM. You can use it for note taking and all these different things. So especially when it's something very wide like that, you, you don't really know where they're at. So how would you go about finding out what stage of awareness they're at? Because I guess once you, or do you just hit every single stage? And do like an, um, I don't know, Facebook ad that targets like one stage of awareness and then one that does another one. How would you go about um, setting that up? I'm very glad that you asked because the traditional way of thinking and marketing is let's just test it and let's just experiment and let's just like throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks and we'll figure it out. We'll probably like blow some budget in a couple of months, but like we'll figure it out basically. And again, I think that that's a very wasteful, terrible way of doing things where you're just like reinventing the wheel and starting from scratch as usual. The mind-blowingly simple and easy tactic is to just ask your customers, like quite literally just get on the phone, uh, get to know them, ask them questions. You can be more you know, strategic and intentional about it, but literally get on the phone, listen to your customers, uh, jot down notes, get a transcription, and then figure out what do I think that this person is? Because even you'll find that there are different sets of customers and people in your audience that are that have sort of like different stages of awareness that have different levels of sophistication. Something like Notion, for example, is very broadly applicable. Um, they have like a hundred of different personas and segments that they could go after. Each one with a different outcome that they're looking for, with a different stage of awareness, with different pain points, uh, with different things that they're looking for, like different solutions um, that have a different frame of reference of what they're comparing it against. Uh, If it's someone like, if my mom picked up Notion today, she'd be comparing it against uh, pen and paper, right? For me, I'm comparing it against like Rome and uh, like a bunch of all the other like really, you know, bleeding edge type of tools, right? And so if you literally ask your customers, it could be on the phone, it could be over survey, it could be by just doing like online research and kind of like curating and lurking on different communities and looking how people describe stuff. Um, but if you jot it down, then then you know, right? And then you can kind of figure it out. And then knowing with that information, you don't have to blow a bunch of budget on the Facebook ad, uh, marketing to a group of people who already know you know, what other things are out there and how, you know, that they're sick of a spreadsheet, right? And you can just say, hey, instead of using a spreadsheet, use this thing over here, like bare metrics or, uh, you know, whatever it is. Instead of um, pen and paper, instead of Trello, use Outseta for your your CRM. Um, And then you can do a retargeting ad that says, now that you know what Outseta is, let me just give you the offer. Start a trial today, right? Uh, you know that they've the, if they've gone to the competitor comparison page, if they started a trial, um, right? That that all influences probably what stage they're going to be in, and then every strategy and tactic then can be thrown through the filter of which stage am I trying to get people to, and how does this help them get there? Right there, I think is the key, especially with the retargeting. You want to get them to do like a certain action, whether you need to like reeducate them or something. This just totally brought up a, a memory. I had um, a Shopify performance marketer on here, Brent Sterling, and he does all of the performance marketing for them, so like all the paid ads and stuff. And what he was doing was for the retargeting ads, it was all educational stuff. So all the retargeting ads weren't like, hey, sign up for a free trial, whatever. It's, hey, learn how to use this tool. Like 
there's so much you can do with it. I think even with Webflow, with all Notion would be another example when there's so much you could do with it. It's just educating them. I think Webflow does the best job at this. Have you watched the Webflow University videos? Like they're the best. And that's marketing at the same time as educating them as you kind of brought in uh, earlier. It's like you're learning how to use this tool, but also it's the perfect example of what that brand's all about. It's it's comedic. It's really thoughtful. It's smart. Like you're like, oh shit, like I, I trust them. Again, bringing that back. I really trust these guys. They're teaching me something. I'm going to learn how to use this. So I think that's an excellent model. Yeah. I mean, even um, to, to take that mental model one step further, you think about uh, who you're marketing to and the market in general. When you have a strong brand, like what does it actually mean to have a strong brand, have a lot of brand awareness? What well, actually means that there's a large portion of your market is in that product aware stage of awareness, right? And so people always talk about, oh, you need to you need to build a brand, you need to invest in brand. And what they're getting at is basically you need to get people to know who you are and what you do. But you can't just do that right away, like you said. In fact, you're probably better off starting from the right end of the spectrum, first increasing the amount of people who are in like the product aware stage to becoming fully aware, right? Getting them to be customers and evangelists, and then working up to solution aware and get them to be product aware. And then from product problem aware to solution aware. And then finally from unaware to problem aware. And then like that whole group of people who are in each one of those stages awareness grows over time. And that's what really makes a strong brand is you are the one doing the educating, doing the uncovering the problems, doing the teaching of what solutions are, doing the teaching of what and who you are. But a brand is basically just your reputation, right? How many people know you and what do they know you for? If a lot of people in that product aware stage, especially, that's really what it looks like to have a, a strong brand, quote unquote. Right. That's like Zoom over the last year, right? Like Zoom has become a, a verb, right? That's when you know you're doing something well, like when you're Googling something or someone or you Facebook yeah. me or let's Zoom. I don't know how... Skype allowed Zoom to overthrow them that quickly, but that was just wild, man. Like now people just know Zoom is like video call, let's go on a Zoom call. Even if we're on Google Meet or something else, it's it's a it's a Zoom call now. So yeah. that's interesting. So really another part of marketing really is just awareness, right? So it's earning trust and gaining awareness. It kind of seems like if you can do those two things. Like it'll kind of, like the problems will all solve itself. People are obviously complicating things, especially I think you mentioned earlier with the D to C space. Like shit's overcomplicated, man. Like people yeah. have been complicating things. It seems like just for the sake of it, almost. <laughs> oh, it's it's so overcomplicated and like diluted at this point. I just feel like we need kind of like a reset to really understand like what's going on and how to think about marketing. Cause it's just gone on like the completely opposite end of the spectrum of like, Oh, just like what are the tactics and like what works today? And like, what should I do? And like people just like copying and they don't even know why they're copying it. Right. But if you really get back to the fundamentals, then that's what allows you to do good marketing and effective marketing, but also do really creative marketing. Cause if you're just, you know, you don't want to, it's, it's one thing to imitate someone else and to basically just like, copy exactly what they do down to a T and not know why they do it and probably fail miserably. But it's another thing to copy what they do and then learn from it and remix it into something for yourself. And because you can take like the most fundamental elements of like, you know, what made that thing work and then tailor it for yourself to make it work for you. But 
you know, that's where we, we get kind of like this, people get crazy about marketing tactics. They just want to know, Oh, what's like the latest channel and what works and like, what color is your call to action button? And it's like, dude, none of that matters. Like you have to really tailor it to your audience for your product, for your market, for the message that you want to deliver. And that's what makes good effective marketing. Oh, totally, man. It's full game of monkey see, monkey do, right? Yeah. Um, it's hilarious. Yeah, a broken telephone. And it's so funny. So I think like this is a great way to kind of tie things together now because we were just talking about the beginning with using swipe files and you know not having to reinvent the wheel. But then it's also you have to know the fundamentals. So obviously, you kind of do that with the teardowns because it's not just like, here's the page. Okay, I'm going to copy. Like, that was good. But why? You talk about it in the teardowns of why it's good, why it's bad. And I would assume people should be doing that when they swipe something, right? Do you do the same thing when it comes to copywriting, when it comes to tweets, when it comes to highlighting things on Kindle? Do you annotate shit? Do you like think about what's the meaning behind it? Do you kind of go to the fu- go back to the fundamentals? Because you're talking about first principles quite a bit. So I'm just wondering if you mix that uh, remixing approach with first principles and how can you make the best of those two ingredients almost? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, for every... Actually, I think I feel like one of the best practices that I've gone into is not only highlighting what I read in my Kindle, but adding a note to it as well. And as part of, again, this is something that I've stole from uh, Tiago Forte, but he has this whole process of what he calls uh, progressive summarization. So like you bold certain words and then you highlight and then you summarize and then you paraphrase. At the end of that, you have like the most basic kind of fundamental essence of what that message was and what it means to you. And so uh, for a lot of ideas that I have and a lot of the, the examples that I run through, I'll just write down a, a quick note about um, here's what I liked about it. And like, here's like a related note to that. Here's like a paraphrased kind of summarized version of this. And like, here's how I would apply this to myself. Even um, today, I was reading an article about how David Perel grows his newsletter list. And they talked about how he uses email courses as a way to get people in and to get people engaged with his emails right away. And so I, you know, highlighted it, imported it into, into Rome. I know I got the quote, I got everything there. And then I wrote about, I thought I I can literally pull it up right now. Um, but I said, David Perel does a few email courses, like five day, uh, Twitter course, seven day writing course, 50 days of writing. I could take this for myself. And then I literally wrote down, you know, five day Twitter course. Um, like why would he choose that? Uh, well, actually that leads into one of his courses, I think how to crush it on Twitter or, or something like that, basically. So, okay, interesting. Like, I think it works for him probably because the email course is directly related to one of his products later. So he's doing some teaching, some education. He's kind of like giving a taste of it. One of his other ones is a, a seven day writing course. And actually I just created this, um, this workshop for uh, the product led summit a few weeks ago. And I created a workshop called the seven habits of highly effective marketers. So I thought, Oh, that's actually a pretty good, like, parallel and, um, you know, equivalent possibly that I could use for an email course. And I never considered it that way because it had just lived as this webinar workshop and actually I could actually remix it and repurpose it into an email course. And then I noticed he had one called 50 days of writing. I thought, Oh my gosh, 50 days. Like he actually sat down and wrote, you know, 50 emails, one per day, just for this email course. So I was exploring, I was looking through it and then I noted, I thought, Oh, actually this is a way for him to repurpose a lot of his essays that are in the archive. So he didn't actually go, he didn't sit down and think, I'm going to create the 50 days of writing email course. He thought, how can I 
remix and repurpose all this content that I've already created and give it new life and get it in front of new people. Oh, I'm going to package it all up in a 50 days of writing email course. And you know, it's not immediately evident that he's just repurposing the content. If he, if he marketed that way, it's like get 50 days of drips emails from like all my past writing. People would be like, what? why would I want that? But you can repackage it, repurpose it together as the 50 days of writing. And then all of a sudden you have this amazing way to engage people in your writing so they can look forward to more. So I thought, okay, I can do the the X days of marketing. Once I have this backlog and archive of, uh, of marketing teardowns of articles and things that I've written and, 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 and done in the past. So I ended with that of being like, okay, so email courses are an interesting way that David Perel is growing his newsletter. It works because it gets people in the door and there's a specific outcome and they're related to something that he sells. That's why they, they work quote unquote, they pay off because they have a positive ROI. Um, and how can I then translate these ideas for myself? And then what what's the action items from this? So I thought, okay, well, one of these I'm not going to do because I don't have like a uh, uh, like an equivalent to five days of Twitter. You know, I'd rather you know sort of just um, focus on one of the other things, which was seven habits of highly effective marketers. So that's one I can go and implement tomorrow. But I'm not going to go create the 50 days of marketing until I have already created 50 pieces of content. And now I've come full circle, right? Now I've made this information actionable in some way. So that's a good example of how I've kind of taken that and, and put it all into use. Man, that is the perfect example. This is. I'm glad that we came to re-record this now because yeah. this is obviously right <laughs> after you did that. So that's serendipity, man. I love when these things kind of just work out. That's a fantastic uh, example. So for you, when you go to make it an action item, do you use like certain tools? Do you have like a framework for when it comes to putting down tasks that you need to do? How do you sort through tasks? I'm sure you have multiple projects going on. How do you kind of juggle all of that and make sure that you're doing it when you need to be doing it? Yeah, this has been a struggle, I'll tell you, because um, with so many projects up in the air, I have a, an ever-growing to-do list. And I know it's ever-growing because every day I go into Rome and I have all my to-dos there just listed under the, the tasks tag. And I notice that the number gets bigger <laughs> every time that I get in there. But it really is an exercise of figuring out what's important. Uh, what's urgent, kind of using like the, the Eisenhower matrix, and then translating that to my calendar. And this has been the hard part. It's not a perfect system. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert at this, but it's something that I'm diligently trying to get better at is instead of just like working chronologically or like in order through the to-dos, I'll instead schedule that on my calendar as a block of time that where I spend on this one project. And now I even have recurring times on my calendar where I do specific types of tasks. So I have, for example, Thursdays are like all blocked off for consulting. So all my consulting to-dos and projects, I have a list of those. And then I pick which ones I do on Thursdays and I give them a specific, okay, I think that this blog post will take me, you know, three hours. Uh, I need to follow up with these emails. I'll give half an hour to email. Uh, I have this call at this time. Uh, and now my whole day is kind of scheduled out. And I know that I can achieve these things within this day, right? So same thing with like Tuesdays. Tuesdays are for myself. It's like my deep work day. And so I have a whole block of time already specced out for this is my writing time. I'm going to go into Rome. I'm going to look at my my like in progress blog posts that are, you know, being assembled and I'm going to continue to assemble. I'm going to put, you know, pen to paper or basically uh, fingers to keyboard and I'm just going to type and I'm just going to get things out of my brain onto something. I don't know exactly if it's going to turn into something legible or interesting, 
but I'm just going to continue to work on those types of things. But it's it's a struggle, to be honest, because really at the, at the end of the day, it's hard to know if what you're doing habitually is actually going to result on the things you want. And this has been another again, like mental model for me is learning to prioritize outcomes instead of output. So like, what can I show and how to show for it instead of like, what can I cross off the to-do list essentially? Like really how productive you are with your time is a matter of what you make of the time, not what you did within that time, right? So like I could sit down and like work on an email for an hour and be like, dang, I was so productive. Like I didn't look at Twitter once and like I just cranked through like a hundred emails. But then what would I have to show for at the end of that? Was that really that important? Um, could I have just like deleted all those emails and save myself an hour that I could use to something else, right? And so the difficult part is figuring out are all these things that I'm doing right now, like you know, this deep work Tuesday, is that going to result in an article this week? Like sometimes it doesn't actually, a lot of times it doesn't, I'm doing a lot of assembling right now, but pretty soon I'm sure that's going to start paying off. And then I'm going to be able to produce one or two articles a week. And now like the time that I've spent a couple of weeks ago doing a lot of assembling, I'm going to start to see uh, the outcome of that. I'm going to have something to show for eventually. And I'll, I'll get in this cadence of it. I don't have it down to an exact science though. It's difficult juggling a lot of different things. Yeah. And I think it just is difficult in general. We're not really wired for that, right? Like we have yeah. all these extensions, you know, second and then third brain some of the times right. to manage this. And I actually saw a tweet today. I was like, actually, by having these knowledge management tools and having these things, it actually does stretch us further than we should be going. And we realize after it's too late, like, oh my God, like you said, with your list growing and growing and growing, you're like, holy shit, I would not have been able to even keep up with that amount of stuff if it weren't for these tools. Even if it was on a piece of paper, you would have started crossing it off, crumpled up, like, nah, I don't want to do that. But now because we have all these tools, unless it's like automated, it's like, holy shit, man, like, like it's really being overloaded. And yeah. <laughs> just to bring something in perspective, Elon Musk is someone who probably does like the most amount of like high level shit. Oh, yeah. And I don't know if you listened to the last Joe Rogan episode with him on there. Joe Rogan was asking him, he's just like, so what's next? You know, you guys are doing the semis, you guys are doing the cyber truck, you guys going to do planes? And then Elon just like looks, stares into the abyss and he's just like, no, you know, I, I asked myself, you know, I was like to my brain, I'm like, should I, should I do an airplane? My brain's just like, no, man, like this, this I'm going to explode. Basically, he's like, <laughs> he's like, my mind is stretched to his limits. And then Joe's like, man, I'm glad you have a limit. I'm glad that there is yeah. a human limit. So there really is a human limit even for the richest man smartest dude out there uh there's there's real limits so that's the great thing about these tools is we can stretch our minds and we can do this but mm -hmm. it comes at a cost so i think like that's where a lot of things are, are coming i spoke with uh, marie polin who does the notion mastery course yeah and she talks about kind of what you, what you talked about it's like the routines and sort of the structures that you build within these tools to know how to actually be productive and be creative or whatever it is that outcome is like if your outcome is to be more creative, maybe you don't want to be as productive. You just want to be creative, right? It's like mm. juggling the two. There's so much, man. Like it's just like it's getting sort of out of hand until you come up with your own solution that works with you. So I don't think it ever is right. Like even for me, like I'll do something like, hmm, I think that could be a little bit better. And again, it could be a little bit of what people are calling like mental masturbation now, right? Where you're like, right. okay, I can like rearrange this or make make these connections. Does it really make a difference at the end of the day? Like, no, I just want to remember to do this. Thing. If I'm not doing it right now, if it does, if it takes me more than five minutes to do, then it goes on the to-do list because I want to remember it for later. And I'll put like a reminder on my iPhone for yeah. like, remind me tomorrow because otherwise I will forget. 
and something will slip through the cracks. So I think it's like, it's always, uh, sorry, that was so weird. I just got a ding, ding, ding in my ear. And that was literally, I got a notification to say, have you done your evening journal? So <laughs> it's funny because this brings me right into what I was about to say. And somehow my brain knew it was eight o'clock here in Toronto to do my evening journal. And I was like, when you're doing all these things, you talked about recurring tasks, right? And that's like, you're literally programming your life. Like you're literally, okay, here's the thing. I'm going to do this thing. This is like in programming, you'd program an algorithm, like do this thing, like at this time or after the sequence events, do these Mm -hmm. things. So your calendar and your to-do list becomes sort of like the programming language that you use to program yourself in this video game of life or whatever right so um to get super philosophical there so we're like these we're not robots we're humans but we are cybernetic organisms that we have that we can constantly program ourselves and that's one of the things i like to bring in this podcast because you know a lot of people are kind of passively going through life they're kind of just doing what other people tell them to do they have obligations they're um uh reflexive uh you know they're not really doing what they want to be doing and you brought it up earlier kind of with that entrepreneurial mindset of like being a self-starter and doing your own thing so you have to be able to program your life so it's interesting to hear some of these strategies that you've employed i'm sure you'll get better over time because you're thinking about it all the time like i want to do better at x or y so yeah there's been a lot there already that has been been really really helpful yeah i think too like getting away from um there's all sorts of these like residual ideas and practices that we take from like outdated or basically even like irrelevant industries or businesses or just like i guess like cultural norms even and one of those i think productivity things is like making the most of your time because if you're paid by the hour and if you're like uh you know a paper pusher or like an assembler like literally on a factory line it's all about making these tiny increments to how can i better use my mind and body to produce more every day. But especially when you're an entrepreneur, that does not exist anymore at all. Like you are the one designing the system and you are the one delegating to other people. Uh, but most of the time it's not really that there isn't that same analogy of like, how do I do more every day? How can I get more out of myself? It's how can I do higher leverage things that will pay off later? And what can I do now that will help me with this next thing I want to do? Like, what's the order of operations here that I really need to think through this? Like, especially for me, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't technically productive that later help me with something that, that I can feel like is productive. For example, there's like customer research, you know, like when I'm really sitting down and I'm consulting with a client, it, it kind of sucks, but I have to spend a lot of time talking to customers, getting to know them building out like a profile, reading through transcripts, just so that I can understand them so that I can do the marketing that is going to work. Because what will happen if I don't do that is I'm going to go do a whole bunch of things that I think will be productive, but at the end of the day are going to fall flat because I didn't do the hard work in the beginning that was quote unquote unproductive, right? Um, Because I can sit down and I can can knock out blog posts. I could start running ads. I could reach out to people. I, I can hop on calls, but if, if it's all for nothing, if I don't have, uh, if I'm not talking to the right people, right. If I'm not talking about the right things, if I'm not creating a message that really resonates with people. In fact, um, for, for Savica, one of my consulting clients, one of the first things that we did was, uh, I sat down and we reworked the landing page because I knew that it's not going to feel a lot like at the end, at the end of this, I'm going to spend, you know, 30, 40 hours on this landing page 
And at the end of the day, it's just going to be like different words on a page. Like it's literally the, the number of different words is going to be like 50. And then I'm going to, I'm going to say, okay, for my 40 hours of work, I created 50 different words on this page. But the end result is that more people are going to sign up every day. More people are going to get it because more people get it. They're going to refer it to more people for any marketing thing that we do in the future. We're going to convert more of those people into happy users and customers. And I'm not going to see the results of that productivity today, but I'm going to see it a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, four years from now, and we're going to reap the benefits of that for a long time. And so it all goes back to the, you know, the delayed gratification of just like, how can you be an investor instead of a day trader? And uh, for everything that you're doing, like just thinking, how can I, wh- what am I doing today that's going to pay off a month from now, two months from now, two years from now, instead of at the end of the day where you feel like, okay, this is what I get for my, that's what I have to show. And uh, this is what's going to, I can, I can feel reasonable charging for. Totally. I think that's a great way to think about it. And that actually brings me just to one of the last questions. I actually didn't ask you this last time, but this is a perfect way to bring it up. You mentioned just kind of changing a few words on the landing page. So what Hmm. actually does make good copywriting? Like if you're getting that granular and you're really thinking about every single word with so much weight to it, how do you go about figuring out correct copywriting in whatever... I'm sure it's different, obviously, in every situation, but what is something that you look for when you're working with clients, when you're building out landing pages? What are some of these copywriting things that you always come back to? I'll reference a lot of things that we've already talked about, and it'll probably make it a little bit more clear and tangible. But the first thing absolutely is to pick a stage of awareness that you want to sort of let your landing page uh, appeal to those types of people. So when I sat down with SavvyCal, for example, it's a Calendly alternative and competitor. And uh, there's all sorts of other Calendly alternatives and competitors as well. Most people, I shouldn't say most, most people, but there are a lot of people with the type of people that we want to reach, which are people like in tech, tech savvy people who know about something like Calendly or are even using Calendly in particular. So again, for the landing page, I'm not going to be describing uh, why someone should use a scheduling link and like what the benefits are, because I'm just going to be rehashing old information. I'm going to lose their attention. So specifically for, for SavvyCal, I figured, okay, a lot of these people are solution aware. I need to make them product aware of SavvyCal. They already know the pains and the problems of, you know, Calendly. Um, they know the pains, and the problems of not using something like Calendly. So I'm just going to really focus in on how SavvyCal is unique. And then maybe later we can work our way sort of backwards or to the left and we can go more, you know, problem aware or unaware to do more kind of educating. But for early stage, you, you have to pick kind of one in particular that you really want to cater towards. And then that really dictates a lot of the other things that you do, right? So above the fold, quote unquote, so anything you can see directly on the, on the screen when you first hit it, uh, you want to catch someone with a headline, some sort of paragraph, an illustration, and a call to action. And so within a lot of the customer research that I did, which is really the cornerstone of a lot of marketing and how you should start with any sort of thing that you do, whether it's designing a new landing page or running an ad or creating a whole kind of marketing plan and strategy is to sit down with customers. And um, we we were kind of moving on an accelerated timeline, so I didn't actually talk to a lot of customers, but thankfully there were a lot of people talking about Calendly online. And since that was the main competitor that we were trying to frame against, uh, there was lots of tweets for me to go through, uh, testimonials and reviews on places like G2 and uh, and Captera, where I could, I could see what people liked and didn't like about it. And in particular, 
with uh, with the unique kind of attributes of what Derek had built with SavvyCal, we figured that we could really hone in on a couple of key differentiators. I'm also, by the way, like this is not new stuff. This is all stuff that uh, April Dunford teaches in her book, Obviously Awesome. Her, her whole kind of playbook is figure out the competitors and alternatives, and then figure out the uh, unique kind of attributes, figure out the value that those attributes unlock, who cares about those things, and then like what's an overall kind of category descriptor that helps people kind of think about it um, and, and put it into, into reference. So you start with, with customer research, and what I found was that there were a lot of people talking about this one particular kind of pain where they just felt like uh, Calendly uh, was like this weird power dynamic where like it felt weird sending their scheduling links. So we wanted to appeal directly to people who knew about scheduling links, wanted to use the scheduling link, but just felt like the scheduling link they had today was a little bit weird. So again, they're solution aware. They're also problem aware. They know the problems, but they didn't know about something that could specifically fix that one particular problem like SavvyCal could. And so literally the homepage reads today, probably if you look at it, is uh, sending your scheduling link shouldn't feel weird. And that was the exact words that someone used in a tweet. And so one of like the copywriting kind of like hacks and uh, secrets, this is, and this is, it doesn't matter if you're like a junior copywriter, or like one of the best, all the best copywriters literally use the exact words that customers and users have said in the past, because what better way to source that information, to swipe it, than to use the exact words the customer, like, you know, that it's going to resonate because a whole bunch of, in fact, the one that I used was this viral tweet about Calendly. So I was like, I know that a lot of people are going to resonate with this message because this guy has already done the hard work of choosing this specific language. And then people have reacted to it. They've retweeted it. They've commented like, yeah, why is it like that? Why does it feel weird to send my scheduling link? And then uh, the unique differentiator was, hey, we have like this overlay feature where instead of like flipping back and forth between different, your calendar and your Calendly, uh, we'll just show your calendar on top of the calendar of the person that you're booking with. And that'll make it really, really easy. And there's a bunch of other things that you can personalize and um, you can like pre-fill so that it's only like one click to schedule and things like that. But basically it removes the power dynamic. It makes it not feel weird to set in your scheduling link. Um, and then that was a call to action. I was say it's free, you know, get started in minutes. And there's finally our kind of tagline is finally a scheduling link that both the recipient and the sender will love because the gripe with Calendly is that the person sending the link is really the only one who's benefiting from Calendly, essentially. To recap, how do you build a good landing page? What are the copywriting techniques? Figure out the stage of awareness that you want to target. Do a whole bunch of customer research. Figure out the exact words that people are using. Kind of copy and paste. Like It's not copywriting. It's copy pasting, essentially, onto the landing page. You can do some like rewording, rephrasing, and um, you know, kind of massaging, finessing of, of the actual uh, words and language. But then really focus in on how do you deliver on the value proposition that will get people to go from whatever stage they are in now to the next stage that they need to in order to sign up for the product or to learn more or to request a demo. In that case, for us, it was creating a free account, which is a very easy ask. Uh, so we could say, hey, aren't you sick of this thing up here? Um, here's how we're different. Sign up today. And, uh, and the rest of the page just goes into more detail about that. That's awesome. That's, a, again, fantastic uh, example. And it's funny because we were talking earlier about potentially doing a plug for that product on these podcasts. Don't need to do that now because you did a fantastic <laughs> job. I think you just by explaining that you you sold it already. Yeah. Um, I've been wanting to check that out for a while. So it seems really cool. There's kind of two things there that sort of like sparked my mind. The first one 
is sort of like from you working with them, do you think about, I mean, your payment obviously right now as a consultant, I don't know how you charge, but do you ever think about sort of like an equity model of like, hey, like if you are going to move the needle that much as a marketer, like have you ever thought about doing like an equity kind of share in, in some of these early stage startups this way? Oh, absolutely. Instead of being an investor, you're investing your time and your resources and, and knowledge, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I would love that. And that's still on the table. It's still kind of like a an open discussion. But I think that that should be encouraged for for really anyone. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know like who exactly, you know, that, that might appeal to, but I'm at the, the, the point in my career and life where I'm not really looking to, you know, for like the next paycheck. I don't have a lot of money, but the thing that I want is ownership, not another paycheck. And if you optimize for equity and for ownership, then again, that removes you from the equation of how much money that you can make because it's something else entirely. It's another team of people. It's a product. It's a service. It's something, you know, people are not buying you and your time. They're buying this thing that you have created or the system you've created or this service that you've created. And especially for marketers, a lot of marketers are just happy trading their time for money. And uh, they're, they're getting gypped because they're a big part of that equation of bringing the product to market effectively. So absolutely. I mean, that's right where my, my head is at. And that's always on the table. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, cause it makes a lot of sense. I think when it comes to for someone building your product, you know, you either can go to, I don't know, uh, Upwork and hire someone overseas to build it for you. You could try to do it yourself with no code or you can find a partner to do it. So I think the same thing is with marketing, right? We, we just said earlier on, it's like there's two sides of the coin for, especially for SaaS. It's like your product and marketing. It's those, if yeah. you can nail those two things, like you're pretty much good. Like just do those two things, um, which is what I love about software. Was that one of the things that kind of drew you to like B2B SaaS? It's like almost the simplicity and the scalability of it. What was the thing that kind of keeps you in that sphere rather than going to like D2C marketing or something else? Yeah, I mean that that's a hundred percent what it is. When I when I first you know I got that first internship and kind of broke into the tech and I learned really what SaaS was. Like I think my only exposure to SaaS at this point was like Spotify and like oh it's like a subscription you know model where you know like you you buy into it and then like you reap the benefits you know over time. But I had no idea that there was all these ginormous you know B two B SaaS companies like there's all sorts of uh, other there's a a SaaS for everything, basically. And it really does appeal because I think especially now for me and like what I want to do in my career, early on, I, I've always wanted to do uh, business and be an entrepreneur. And I sort of like flailed around like I did. Um, you know, I thought, oh, I can be like a web designer and I could, you know, scale up like an agency that like builds websites for people. Then I'd, I still think that that's a great business, but personally, it's not for me because I didn't want to be in like the people management business. I wanted to be in like the product management kind of business. Um, and then uh, I kind of got a little bit more into like info marketing and I didn't create anything, but I always knew like, oh, online courses are like a great thing because it literally costs zero dollars to make this thing. And you can charge however much um, it's worth, right? Whatever value uh, it, it delivers to people. And sell multiple times. And sell multiple times, exactly. And then so when I was introduced to software, it was like, hey, people get access to this software that provides value and then you get recurring revenue forever and it's not tied to any sort of like thing that you're delivering we have this fixed cost it's like wow that that's a really great business and also makes for great marketing too because you don't really have to worry about the software scaling necessarily like having inventory like that was one of the things that really drew me away from e-commerce and even drop shipping was because i always knew that 
Um, the product would be an issue either with margin or with having enough inventory. Um, and so for software, it was really appealing because I knew that that part would be kind of taken care of. And especially if people were using it, if it was valuable, there's no reason that they would stop using it. And in fact, it would probably get more valuable over time. And uh, it seemed like a great deal. It's a, it's a win-win, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. I, th- I totally agree. I think the software space is like probably the most exciting right now. I wonder when we're going to reach that point where it's like oversaturated. And there's just like, I guess with the no code might bring that <laughs> into discussion where everybody and anybody can kind of make it. Right now, it's still pretty specialized. It's not the easiest thing to do. It's still a hard thing to do. But just like we talked about with swipe files, a lot of the SaaS is the same thing. It's some sort of dashboard with whatever, especially in the B2B space. We talked about Outseta earlier. There's like tools that can help you build that sort of infrastructure. So it's getting a lot easier. I'm just wondering when we're going to hit that plateau. Hopefully not anytime soon because there's yeah. still a lot of problems to be solved, right? That's kind of what it is, just solving problems digitally. I don't really think we're going to reach that point. I think um, I think actually, so I'm, I'm working this workshop right now, but uh, I think more and more the product is not going to be the hard part of the equation. Like there's... If you look at even what's happened within like physical products, I mean, the last 20 years has been like amazing progress with the ability to spin up new products, to manufacture, to drop ship, to like completely automate, delegate, commoditize, basically anything that you can imagine. Someone can make it if you have enough cash to produce it. And then what became the differentiator in e-commerce was marketing. It was it came, became all about brand, mm-hmm. became all about how, how well can you run Facebook ads became how well can you retain your customers and get repeat purchases? How well can you essentially establish a moat in distribution? And I still think that they're the big kind of um, uh, crux for software is the product because it's still, I mean, it takes a lot of work in capital and specialized knowledge to produce good, useful, you know, software. But eventually, like we're seeing with no code, that's not going to be the issue. And more and more marketing is actually going to become the crux of it. And it's going to, the same thing that happened with D2C where it became all about brand and, and marketing became very, very competitive. That same thing is going to happen with software where we're already seeing it with like the commoditization of, you know, there's a, there's a bazillion CRMs and there's like a bazillion invoicing softwares. And like, that's going to happen across basically every industry. And then it's become, you know, who do I trust? Who has, who does the best marketing, who has the the distribution modes, um, who can effectively hold their attention uh, who can ha- who has the lowest churn, right? And can like protect their customer base. I think we talked about it a little bit before too, but more and more too, it's going to become more important to have owned platforms, owned lines of communication with your audience. Because what happens is that people are essentially renting these platforms on Twitter, on YouTube, on TikTok, on Clubhouse, like whatever the hot thing is at the moment. But it's ephemeral. It, it just it disappears. Like what happens when, for example. Like five years ago, Facebook just completely killed the organic reach for pages to reach their audience. And they have to go find another thing, right? And then you're just like constantly hopping over to the next thing. And then what happens when uh, none of those things are a really great way to build an audience organically and to reach people? Well, then you have to actually go borrow other people's audience. Now that I think that's one of the big things right now will continue to be one of the big strategies. But they should also, no matter what it is, whether you're you know, YouTubers figured this out a long time ago. Again, I think that they're the best marketers. They did collaborations. They brought other people's audiences. Um, podcasters do this. You, like me right now, you jump on someone's podcast and you borrow their audience. 
Um, there's all sorts of opportunities for borrowing someone's audience, whether you're listed on the platform, uh, you you sponsor. I mean, I think mostly a lot of advertising is borrowing someone's audience, but they should all be pointing back to building your own platforms. So you're growing that audience there. And that really is, it comes down to a few core things. It's your email list. It's some sort of uh, private community. It's a text message list. It's a podcast and it's your website, you know, whatever is on there, whether it's blogs, videos, other types of, of content. And the goal should always be to get more people there. That way you have an established line of communication. No one can say, oh, hey, like we just killed the organic reach. Sorry, but like you can never, you know, read this again. Or they say, you know, we don't want to collaborate anymore. Um, you know, you're getting too big and or it costs too much for someone like Facebook, for example, or LinkedIn, where you just kind of get priced out of it, it becomes too expensive. But if you have an established owned line of communication with your audience, then nothing's stopping you from reaching those people. Uh, and as long as everything's pointing back to that, you're seeing this with Clubhouse Lab right now, where it's like the hot new toy, but the conversations come and go, right? And if that's all of you're doing in Clubhouse one day, you can become less effective, which it inevitably will. It's kind of the, the law of diminishing returns. Then what are you going to do with that if you didn't loop people into your own platforms, like your podcast and your newsletter and some sort of community where you have that line of communication? So anyways, I think that's going to be um, really the, the crux of uh, the future of SaaS and continuing the future of D2C. Any other industry or place that you're in is how well can you borrow other people's audience to get them to your rented audience, to get them to your owned audience and uh, and and keep people's attention there. Yeah, absolutely. And I was—I think I brought this up before, but you basically summarized the book *Traffic Secrets* by right, Russell yeah. Brunson, right? Uh, and I think that's exactly it, right? Which reminds me, I still have not set up a newsletter for this podcast or like my personal site. So by the time this comes out, I will. So nice. anyone listening, go to the website, listen to the podcast on the website, joshconsolvis.com/podcast subscribe. I will have this up because Corey just reminded me to do that. And same thing with Corey. Um, this might be a good time to plug. Where can people go to find you more? Where can they go on your website and kind of get looped in on your stuff? Yeah. So if you wanted to go to my rented platforms, I'm mainly on Twitter at Corey Haynes Co. Uh, my owned platforms, if you will. CoreyHaynes.co is my personal site where you can... I have links to like all the things that I work on and like a couple... Uh, other things that might be interesting, swipefiles.com, that's swipefilesplural.com. I recently got the .com. Actually, I think maybe even between the first recording and, and this one. And since you are going to manage to set up your newsletter, I'm going to have uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Marketers email course live by the time it goes live and this one's published. Um, so uh, I'll send you the link. You can find it in the show notes, but uh, that'll be live if you want to go through that and, uh, and dig into more marketing stuff. That's perfect. Thanks so much, Corey. So last two questions then uh, for you before we get going. Number one being, what do you see as sort of the biggest opportunities in marketing right now? And you kind of mentioned a few that will be tried and true forever. What do you see that are some big opportunities that people can capitalize on now? And then after that, where do you go to kind of learn more about marketing? Where do you go for these sources of information? Uh, for anyone listening, go to swipefiles.com and you'll find all of the stuff that Corey finds. But I'm interested after to hear kind of where you get that stuff. I'll mention two really interesting opportunities in marketing right now. One is, I think that the idea of borrowing someone else's audience, because it's sort of a, a false starter, a chicken and egg problem where like, 
if the rented platforms like Twitter, you know, Facebook, YouTube, whatever, are getting more and more competitive, then that's really the only tool you have to build your own audience. Then where else do you go? Well, you have to go to someone else's audience. And people are not doing this well. Like this is a wide open opportunity to really be intentional about collaborating with people. And again, having that give first mentality and not thinking like, hey, how can I like get on their podcast? But like, how can, what can I say that would be valuable for his audience that will help him? And how can I help him share his podcast to grow his audience? Um, and let it be kind of a win-win, but there's all sorts of opportunities between hopping on a podcast, between speaking at a conference, between running a giveaway and incentivizing people to share, uh, you know, your new, your new book or whatever it is, sponsoring newsletters, writing guest posts. Like these are all things that are really good opportunities for anyone in any capacity that's not being taken advantage of. If you can present a really relevant, personalized offer. And again, that's not what people are doing. So if you can take the time to do that and, and really figure out how you can borrow someone's audience, that's a really great strategy. An easy way to do that is to, again, do some customer research and just ask them, hey, who do you pay attention to? What do you subscribe to? Uh, what do you listen to? Where do you hang out online? Who are the people that you learn from and that, that you like? You kind of asked me that earlier with like people like David Perel, for example, is one, one of those big inspirations for me. And then that you'll start to just make a list, a big list of like, all right, these are all the things and people that have the attention of my audience. How can I then go and figure out a way to collaborate with them and, and borrow their audience, quote unquote. Uh, the other one, a little bit more specific and tactical is um, newsletter referral programs. And I'm actually going to plug one of the sponsors for my new podcast, Everything is Marketing, called Sparkloop. I've been using it for myself, but it's an amazing tool. And again, one of those things where you kind of think like, oh, why was this not a thing before? But I figured I'd mention it for you as well as you think about your newsletter. Um, but it's basically creating a referral program directly within your newsletter and your emails. And so you incentivize newsletter uh, readers to share with other potential newsletter readers and subscribe. And then you can set up these you know really cool reward programs. And it's basically like a, a, a morning brew referral program for anyone and everyone, basically. It's just like plug and play. It works really well with a lot of the big email service providers. They have a case set in there. It's like this one guy really use and leverage the referrals to grow to like 50,000 subscribers in five months or something like that. It's crazy. Um, and again, one of those things where like, once it becomes mainstream might not be as effective, but, uh, I think a staple for everyone nonetheless and something you can definitely take advantage of now. That's um, awesome. But don't you think free things are going to work forever? And, and funny you brought this up because I stumbled across that tactic, um, earlier on for my apparel company, long boy, and we grew like exponentially in like, I think three weeks by doing this, by just, and it was giving away one of our own products. There's like a new uh, mm. jacket. We, we did like a champion partnership. So we had like a champion logo, long boy logo, and we gave it out for free. And it's exactly what you described. It's like you have people sign up. Um, and then once they've signed up, they can get extra points. So they have more draws or more tickets in the draw. And then you can tell them like, Hey, go tweet this out and you'll get like 10 more points. Go share this on Facebook, get 10 more points. So we use something else different. called like a viral. Oh, this is different then. Yeah, this is different. So basically that, that'd be like a, like a one-time <laughs> campaign where this is like an ongoing incentive yeah. for anyone to share at any time. So instead of it being like a giveaway where it's, you know, you, uh, you share and then you get like extra entries, for example, right? it's for everyone that you share um, and, and you reach certain milestones, like you unlock that reward automatically. So for example, like uh, I know, uh, 
for Swifels, what worked really well was um, if someone just referred two other subscribers to the newsletter in particular, and they got those people to subscribe, which you know it all does the tracking for you, then they'll get a free shout out within the newsletter. And just with that one incentive reward by itself, uh, ongoing, I've had, I think, an additional like four or 500 extra subscribers just from that one kind of like initial award. And then I have another one where uh, if they get, if they refer five subscribers, then they, they got, um, I think 50% off their first year's membership from that. There's been like kind of a power law, but like 10, I think 10 people have unlocked that and they have collectively brought in like another 1000 subscribers. Uh, like there's one lady, literally she posted on like a Facebook group and brought in like a hundred subscribers in one day, basically. But the magic is that with every email that you send, you have a reminder that says, Hey, share this newsletter to unlock these rewards. Here's your next milestone that you can unlock. And that just works on autopilot. It's kind of set and forget. And so I haven't sent my newsletter in a while, but people continue to share it and more people subscribe. And I know that when I start sending again, I have these new rewards now where it's a little bit more like I have a... I think a three, a five, 10, 50, and a hundred milestones and the wars get better across that board. And, uh, and that just like continues to work exponentially over time. instead of like a one-time campaign. Okay. That's awesome. So this is, yeah, this totally just expanded my horizon here right, with referral right. program. I think referral marketing is so incredible. Oh, Again, yeah. I saw the, I saw the power of it just from doing this giveaway, which it was a, fi- a fixed time. It was only like two weeks. And, you know, people are getting more entries and that it blew up exponentially very quickly over that time. So it'd be really cool to see that over the long term. So this right. gave me some more ideas. I'm sure anyone listening, it just kind of, I'm sure it just got their minds just kind of sparked to be like, oh, I'm going to try this. So what was the tool again that you're using for that? Yeah, it's called Sparkloop and you can find Spark. it at sparkloop.app. Cool. Okay. That's awesome. So I'll put the link in the description too and show notes. Uh, that's fantastic. So last question for you, man. You are obviously ungodly when it comes to marketing. You just know all this crazy shit. Where do you get it all, man? Where do you where do you go to learn more? Oh man, um, a lot of different places. I uh, I think that for me personally, I think that again, this probably shows in like my whole kind of method and what I've been doing. But I've really expanded outside of the like marketing echo chamber. So I don't actually listen to a lot of. Um, like marketing podcasts and subscribe to a lot of marketing newsletters and read marketing blogs anymore. I'm more like taking ideas from other industries and other kind of disciplines and, and backgrounds. And I'm also just watching interesting people. Again, I think one of the things that I've learned is that like there are a lot of people, this is why I started the podcast, Everything's Marketing, because there are so many people who are amazing marketers who do not have marketing in their job title at all. Um, they're YouTubers, they're podcasters, they're investors, they're entrepreneurs, um, they're uh, they're customer success people, um, they're they're engineers, even they're they're dev people, um, but they're amazing marketers, and so I try to steal the best ideas from them. You know, someone like Diego Perel, I think, has. I was just looking today. I was studying the way that he uses email courses uh, for YouTubers. I think that there's a lot to learn about, like. Uh, thumbnails and um, titles and like the way that they kind of loop it people in within the first 10 seconds, like Mr. Beast talking about um, how to create a great YouTube video was like a masterclass, right? YouTube marketing is just like unlocked that all for free. So a lot of the people that I'm studying are kind of like a mix of like mainstream influencers and like niche influencers and uh, just like people at the top of their top of their field who are, who are doing cool stuff and, uh, and putting out a lot of content 
So I can name a whole bunch, but it's that's like the whole kind of category of who I pay attention to. That's cool. And then you take all those, the best ideas, save it into Rome, save it into my mind to reference later. Yeah. And then eventually I'll start writing about it more. Again, I've been doing a lot of curating, a lot of assembling, and pretty soon it's going to turn into uh, outcomes and uh, things that I can actually have something to show for. That's really cool. Well, I mean, you kind of did that with the podcast already. So it'll be cool to see you kind of switch mediums going into the blog. Maybe you'll be referencing stuff from the podcast, transmedia style. I don't know if I told you about this or I brought it back up. Um, The whole idea of transmedia is, you know, you can tell the same story or sell the same thing or talk about the same thing in multiple ways. You know, you started as a YouTube video, it could be a podcast, put it in the blog and it's all interconnected. So I think, you know, just like Rome style, it's, you know, playing with different mediums and connecting it all into different ways. So I'm excited to start seeing that a lot more from a lot more people as well. Yeah. And and in fact, the, the reason why I haven't done a lot of the newsletter writing uh, and um, people should subscribe to the newsletter because it's about to, like the content production is going to start going up, but I needed to figure out this first kind of piece of input, which is actually the podcast. Because what I'm finding is, is this, again, this virtuous uh, flywheel where I'm interviewing people for the podcast, which in and of itself is a great way, kind of like a marketing tool, gain attention, borrow their audience when they share. But also the things that I'm learning from them, I can apply it to myself, but also I can teach people and kind of extract what works for them and use that for other content in my courses, uh, for maybe a future book that I work on, for the newsletter, for, for blog posts, for, for tweets. For example, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about it pretty soon, maybe by the time this comes out, but I'll just leave this with this one last kind of like example is uh, I, was, I was talking with, again, Alex Hillman for the podcast, go listen to that podcast episode. And I asked him what's in his swipe file and like, what's like a notable marketing example that he likes. And it was so surprising because he said that he was actually studying Twitch streamers and he was just like fascinated with, with streamers. And he was talking about how this one guy, I forget his name now, uh, but I have it in the episode and you can go find it. He, he's a streamer. He was trying to figure out how to reach more people. And like, he was very entrepreneurial, wanted to kind of like get into more people. And he actually wanted to, he was like appealing to a lot of other streamers. And one of the big issues with streaming is that you can't use copyrighted music, right? And so people are like, you know, they're playing like these really lame kind of like, like background music, noise. Yeah. yeah just yeah. like stand in music. So what he did was he went and paid basically like a band, like a musician, a, an artist or producer to produce a whole playlist of copyright free music. And it's basically like engineers marketing because then he promoted it as like this big thing where it's, here's like his playlist that other Twitch streamers will, will play. And what's playing like you can see what's playing for each one of the streamers it's by him right so then there's always like a tie back to him right i think from that like he's just like blown up and like it's just an amazing like long-term thing that's like wow i like that's such a great example of of marketing and like really creative engineering as marketing example that you one you would never would have thought of but also then you can start to think about okay how can i do this for my industry and for what i want to do um and so there's all sorts of ideas and tangents that you can go down but um that now will be one of the things that i can talk about is like here's a really creative marketing idea you probably would never heard about but that i am going to teach you that you can take for yourself that is awesome man i'm so excited i'm gonna go listen to that full episode now because that's that's so cool um okay man i I think i asked you this last time uh, but i like to end off every episode with this what is something that you're super excited about uh coming up something you're working on something coming up what's exciting you 
Yeah, I'm I'm really really stoked about the Swipe Files community. To be honest, just to continue to invest in it and uh, interact with people there and grow relationships there, it's been a surprisingly fun and like meaningful endeavor. Because I think it's one thing to like help someone one on one and like you know either through like a just like getting a coffee or like consulting or what I just you know giving advice to someone. It's also another thing to help people kind of at scale, like one to many and to, and to teach, you know, in like a classroom setting or through a course or through a blog. But it's another thing entirely to like facilitate and help people help other people, if that makes sense. And so the community is such a really cool place. And I just like fallen in love with the whole idea of the community of people helping each other. And like every day I log in and there's questions and comments and replies of people like answering and just like brainstorming together. And it's really, really fun. So I'm excited to like keep investing into that, see where it goes and keep seeing more and more people uh, in the community. Well, that's awesome, man. And um, it's really cool to see you invest so much into the education of the stuff. Um, you know, it's obviously you go through lots of courses yourself and you're really into learning. Um, something that I hadn't really been into until like of recent years. And one thing that that brought up with the community is just like, I remember I had one of the best philosophy professors in university and he kind of like i don't know if he was like off his meds or something <laughs> he's a philosophy professor right he's just like yeah university is pretty much bullshit um what university is is what you learn from all the other students around you so i think that's mm. the perfect um example right there with your community 100 percent. yeah this is amazing Corey. thanks so much for a second round i'm excited to do a third round maybe i'll find <laughs> the backup audio of the last one people want to listen to it as like a bonus episode or something yeah we cover a lot of the same stuff um but anyone listening go check out swipe files go on Corey's website hit him up on twitter i'll post all of your links in the description of this podcast Corey. i really appreciate you bestowing me with your wisdom and thank you so much for coming back on mind meld absolutely thanks for having me it's a ton of fun and i appreciate it